Now, my children were among those on stage this morning dancing, and they are now five and six. And, um, you know, I've discovered one of the great joys, and at the same time frustrations, of being a parent is introducing my children to board games that I enjoyed playing when I was their age. And I got to thinking about board games this week because this whole passage is kind of about rules. Thinking about the way rules impact the enjoyment of board games. Uh, checkers is, I think there's a spectrum. You know, on, you got on one end, you got board games that don't really have a lot of rules. Things like shoots and ladders and checkers. And they're three, four, five years old. You can start sort of introducing them to these board games and they get the hang of it. And of course you have to correct and remind them, no, you, you can only jump one at a time until you get a king. But mostly you break through the barrier of the rules and just start to enjoy playing games with your kids. Then there's another kind of board game, like Monopoly, that's a little more layered. And your enjoyment of the game depends on knowing the rules and knowing how to maximize them to your benefit. So I was the big brother who conveniently had mastered the rules so that I always benefited from every roll of the dice, right? And hey, no, actually you've the rules say that you have to let me buy that, you know, if you don't have the money or whatever. You know, so the enjoyment of the game really depends on knowing the rules, and if you have to break down the rules every few turns to somebody, that can be really frustrating. Can the halts and starts, it's like, hey, we just need to put this away, and we'll try again when you're 18, you know? Um, but then there's this whole other layer of board games, and I think especially of the game Risk, which has so many detailed rules that... By the time you're done setting up and placing all your men in your countries and on your continents, you're like, hey, well, that was fun. Uh, we should do this again sometime. And it's like, you're done. You know, board games really do depend, the enjoyment of board games depends on the rules and, and how you interact with the rules and whether they're barriers to your enjoyment or whether they sort of grease the rails so that you can just get through the setup and enjoy being with your kids. And I bring that up because I think that we end up in that same sort of thing with God that the enjoyment of our relationship with him and the enjoyment of the life we're supposed to live before him really depends on our relationship to his rules. His rules become these things that are constantly in the back of our minds and we're constantly weighed down by the sense that maybe we failed him or disappointed him or that we've disappointed the people he's placed in our lives to teach us and to encourage us and to instruct us. And pretty soon the life that Jesus came to give us is just almost totally obscured by all the stuff of the Christian life, the rules. Are y'all, have y'all been there? You know what I'm talking about, the rules of it. Well, if you can relate to me and to others like me who are here, this is what I want you to leave today knowing. Okay, this is just, if I could implant this one thing in your mind, this would be it. I want you to leave here today being able to say with all your heart that I can rest easy in what Jesus has done for me. Can we, can we say that together now? So in case you doze off later, you'll at least remember. All right, let's say it. I can rest easy in what Jesus has done for me. That's it. That's what I think this passage is all about. So I want to explain it to you, and then maybe open that up and try to understand what it would look like for you to rest easy this week. All right, over the past 10 weeks, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel. And if you haven't been here, we've kind of seen the same theme developed over and over and over again. Mark's main concern is telling his readers who Jesus is. 
That starts out by revealing how he fulfills the Old Testament promises about a coming Messiah, an anointed one who's going to usher in God's blessing. He reveals Jesus as the Son of God, the King who comes announcing the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Of course, Jesus, most of the time, uh, is happy to let his actions speak for themselves. And so he doesn't go around with a name tag on, Jesus the Messiah. Instead, he just exercises his authority and lets people fill in the blanks. And that authority gets exercised everywhere and over everything. Over the teaching of the scribes. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He exercises authority over illness and just like heals people. He exercises his authority over unclean spirits, demons. And a few weeks ago we saw how he says that he even has authority to forgive sins on earth. And everywhere Jesus goes, exerting his authority, casting out Satan and planting his flag behind enemy lines, he starts to find people who want in on the action. And so they crowd to him. They prevent him from even preaching sometimes because they just line up out the door asking for him to heal them. But at the same time, he faces increasing pressure from the religious leaders. And that's what our passage this morning is all about. This is the fourth of five controversy stories in Mark chapters 2 and 3. And it's the first one dealing with the right way of keeping the Sabbath. And I know you saw it. The Pharisees' accusation to Jesus this week is that his disciples are doing what is not lawful. Or that they're doing what's against the rules on the Sabbath. I know we all come from lots of backgrounds, and maybe Sabbath sounds like a new word to you. You only know it because of that one band back from the 80s, Black Sabbath. And you're like, what is this all about? Well, I just want to open it up because this week and next week we're talking about the Sabbath. And so it's important for us to understand why the Pharisees thought this was such a big deal. Why, why do the rules about Sabbath keeping matter? Well, the Sabbath was the weekly Jewish holy day. Um, it was a day to rest from your normal work and to focus your attention completely on God. It started on Friday night at sundown, and it lasted until Saturday at sundown. And its importance for Jews in the first century, and even some today, is hard for most of us Christians to understand. And here's the reason why. Is that we know somehow that maybe Sunday has something to do with the Sabbath. But the way we keep our Sunday is foreign to the way they kept their Sabbath. You know, most of us uh, show up to church on Sunday mornings ready to worship God. And we head out, eat some lunch, Chicken Express, Blake's. What, Blake's is closed on Sunday, though. I hear about that because that's a huge disappointment and let down to Mike. But you go, you find yourself something to eat, and you go home, and maybe you take a nap and uh, watch a little football, and then about 3, 4, 5 o'clock, you get up and start to do your chores to get ready for the week. You know, wrap up all the things that you left undone on Saturday, because this is the last day. That's how we keep Sundays. But that wasn't the way the Jews kept the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping was a whole different thing. Uh, it was one of the principal distinguishing marks of Jewish identity in the first century. And so they, they had more at stake than just their religion. It was an issue of national pride. So the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples breaking the rules for the Sabbath, and they go on high alert. Jesus and his guys aren't just doing something that's unseemly. Well, I wouldn't do that if I were you. 
or something that's like unwise, like maybe God would have a word with you about that. But they think they are doing something offensive and unpatriotic. I think it's like the same kind of visceral reaction that you would have if you saw somebody burning an American flag is how they felt about Jesus and his disciples breaking the rules of the Sabbath. Now, that's not the way I think about Sunday. If you want to cut your grass this afternoon, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not going to come over there with a clipboard and say, hey, just want to let you know. I've been keeping track, and you broke the Sunday rules. That's not like that. It was for them. They are out and about looking for people who aren't minding their P's and Q's about the Sabbath. Why is that? Why the Sabbath is such a big deal? Why make it a badge of national identity? Why make it a big deal? When I understand that, you have to get inside their heads. You've got to understand their thinking, their theology of the Sabbath. So I want to give you five things that I think are important to know about the Sabbath. If you're the type of person who writes things down, you can write them down or you can ask me later and I'll email you my notes for today. Deal? Okay, so number one, their theology of the Sabbath was rooted in creation. Rooted in creation. Right, the first time we come across the word Sabbath or the Hebrew verb which Sabbath is derived from is in Genesis chapter 2. And if you're the type of person who thinks you put the most important things at the top of a list or at the front of a book, You'd have to say Sabbath must be important. There it is, Genesis chapter 2, the first page of Scripture. And who else is keeping Sabbath but God? It's by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he'd done. And he rested, he Sabbathed on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested, he Sabbathed from all the work which he had created and made. So six days, God's working hard, making things come to be that previously were not. And then on the seventh day, like the lady in the Febreze commercial, he, he rests. He looks at all the things he's made and he says, this is very good, and he just soaks it all in. God's resting isn't his retreat into the background. God doesn't cease to be God or creator or sustainer or provider. But it turns the page into a different kind of time. It's not like the other six days. It's totally different and set apart. I think this rest that the author of Genesis is talking to us about is a rest that implies an orderliness, a holistic goodness that the Bible often calls shalom. Not just peace, but everything's put just as it should, and God enjoys it. He sits back on the seventh day and rests. The rabbis knew that. Pharisees knew that. We keep Sabbath because God keeps Sabbath. But it goes beyond that. It's not just rooted in creation. It's required by the covenant. And if you want to, you can look with me at the Ten Commandments. I'm going to preach through the Ten Commandments next summer, Lord willing. So we'll look at it in detail when we get there. But this morning, I'm just going to read it to you. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know that, right? That's the Ten Commandments. Makes sense. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For, because, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
God's rest, his enjoyment of the things that he had made on the Sabbath, was supposed to be reflected among his covenant people, the people who were ruled by his law, Israel. Among the nations, totally unique, that God came and entered into them, with them, into a covenant relationship. And he defined the behavior he expected of them. I mean, think about this. Of all the ten rules that God could give his people, right there, the first table, we call it, the first grouping, is the Sabbath commandment. To keep the Sabbath day holy, set apart to the Lord. Just like he worked six days, rested on the seventh, so you and everything about you ought to be at rest on the seventh day. So it's rooted in creation, required by the covenant, and get this, refined by redemption. And we get this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where Moses has led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, so that the rebellious generation all passed away out there in the desert. And as Moses prepared God's people to enter into the promised land, which oftentimes, by the way, I don't, I don't go into detail on this, but oftentimes the Old Testament talks about the land of Canaan, the promised land, as Israel's rest. They receive their rest from God. Before they go into this rest, Moses reminds them of their covenant and their constitution. And he tells them this in Deuteronomy 5:12, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. He said, there was a time in your history when you were a slave under the authority of a slave master. And he gave you more work to do than you could absolutely manage. You had to go find your straw, find your own dirt. You had to make bricks. The quota was too high. There was no hope. Why would you put yourself in that position again and work yourself to the bone? I redeemed you from that kind of life. You're not a slave anymore. You're set free. So enjoy your freedom. Enjoy the redemption that I brought you on the Sabbath day. So not just rooted in creation, not just required by the covenant, but it was refined by who they were as God's redeemed people, that he had brought them out of Egypt and was giving them rest. Because of that, I think you could think about the Sabbath as a microcosm of what God intends to do for the whole world. Right? God is on mission to redeem a people from every nation, tribe, and language. And someday, and I hope someday soon, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to remake our world, and we're going to live in perfect shalom again. Perfect orderliness, a new heavens and a new earth. And that day, we will be at perfect rest. We will have perfect peace. And I think the Sabbath day was intended by God to be a foretaste of that future for his people. They were there to enjoy the redemption in the promised land that God had brought them. So the rabbis see Jesus and his disciples picking grain and grinding it together, and they lose their mind. Haven't you forgotten? This is God's day. We are his redeemed people. What are you doing? Working. But... This is where it kind of gets bad. It's rooted in creation, required by the covenant, refined by redemption. It's rejected by the people. And throughout the Old Testament, all the good things that God had given his people to do became heavy burdens, and they rejected them. They were actually rejected God's authority to even give them rules, and they decided to do all kinds of things for themselves. And many times the prophets identify these things. You know, you've been unjust. You've been taking advantage of the widow and the poor. You've been trampling over them. Their, their voice is crying out to me from the dirt, 
But Ezekiel defines their rejection of the Sabbath as one of the main marks against them. God speaks to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 20, verse 13. He said, The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They didn't walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. So the Sabbath is supposed to be God's gift to remember who they are as his redeemed people. And they decide they're going to make it a day all about them. And the prophets over and over said they've gone to the high places and altars and they've worshipped other gods on the Sabbath. I mean, imagine the affront that that would be to the God who saved them. I saved you guys from slavery and here you are worshipping somebody else on my day. But again and again, the people rejected him. And through Isaiah, the Lord identified disregard for the Sabbath as one of the primary reasons for their exile into Babylon. You guys aren't going to keep the Sabbath. You're not going to let the fields lie fallow in the Sabbath years. I'm going to spit you out that the land may have rest. And we talked about that when we worked through the book of Daniel last school year. And you can track those things down on the, the website, the 70 years of exile corresponded to the 10 Sabbaths that the people of Israel hadn't let the land experience while they were there. And so they were cast into exile. But Isaiah promised them in Isaiah 58 that one day they would call the Sabbath a delight and honor it again, and the Lord would restore their fortunes. So you can understand Pharisees committed to the, as, to the law as they are, going around with the clipboard, taking roll and making sure nobody missed the Sabbath again. You can understand why they'd find Jesus and his disciples' disobedience um, a little offensive. Here they were, hoping that someday, if they just got their act together and kept the Sabbath, then God would come back to his people, bring in his kingdom, and rule over them again. That's why it was so offensive. They saw Jesus and his disciples as the reason that God hadn't returned to Israel. Because of that, the rabbis regulated Sabbath observance like crazy. I mean, by the first century, it had become the defining feature of Jewish identity. You can even already pick up on this in the book of Nehemiah after God brings his people back from exile. And Nehemiah stations shoulders over the gates of the city to make sure nobody comes in and out to sail during the day and nobody sets up camp right outside the city gates, right? It's like the implication being, you're making war against us if you try to lead us astray. So it's a defining mark of Jewish identity and an absolute obsession of the rabbis. They'd taken it upon themselves to ensure that nobody ever fell into the same kind of disregard for the Sabbath that had led to exile. And so they created all these rules. What defines Sabbath keeping and not? They're, they're exhaustive and exhausting lists of what qualifies unlawful behavior for the Sabbath. That's what they charge the disciples with. They're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. One list from a collection of rabbinic writings from like the 4th and 5th century called the Mishnah identifies 39 prohibited behaviors on the Sabbath. It says the 40 prohibited behaviors less one are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, 
shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, separating two threads, weaving two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, and taking something from one place to another. It's a lot of work to keep a day of rest. But those are the rules. And what are you going to do? They believed if maybe all the people got together, kept that list real good, maybe then God would see his people's obedience and he would bless them again. So they called Jesus' disciples out. What are you guys doing? Don't you know that we've said it's illegal to reap? And what are you doing when you're plucking heads of grain but reaping? Don't you know it's illegal to grind grain on the Sabbath? And what are you doing when you rub it between your hands, if not grinding it? You're breaking the Sabbath. The punishment for Sabbath keeping was death. So here they are, laying a formal charge, trying to promote obedience on pain of death. Isn't that exhausting? The rabbis had effectively taken something that God had intended from the beginning of creation and in his covenant, by his act of redemption, to lead his people into the wonderful enjoyment of who God was and what God had done. And they had totally obscured it by layer and layer and layer of man-made traditions and rules. All because they believed that if we keep God's Sabbath, maybe then... He'll bless us. And it's easy to look at the Pharisees, and I mean, Pharisee comes down to us as a term for somebody who keeps ridiculously precise rules. So it's easy to just say, well, these are Pharisees. You know, what do you expect from a bunch of people um, who are committed wholeheartedly to an impossible level of obedience? But I think you know as well as I do that the Pharisees don't have a corner on the market of silly, man-made rules. And I, I really think that God's people are always at risk. They always face the temptation of turning His blessings into burdens and letting the relationship that He starts by grace devolve into a whole bunch of rules. Blessings, burdens, relationships, rules. And we call that temptation and the person who gives into it legalism. Legalism is the idea that a person's works or their acts of devotion to God serve as the basis of their relationship with Him. And as a result, a person who keeps to the straight and narrow can boast in what they've done and what they've accomplished. The Pharisees saw themselves that way. You know, Jesus talks about it in Luke 18, the Pharisees' mindset. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
and I give tithes of all that I get. <laughs> That's the legalist. Though their lives are marked, man, sometimes I want to get out of here too. I don't blame the kid. So <laughs> this is the problem for the legalist though. Though their lives are, are marked by obedience, I mean exacting obedience, their motivations are shameful. They're not doing it out of a heart of love for God. They're doing it to try to put God in their debt where he owes them for what they've done. They say, God loves me because I keep his rules. And so as a result, they take pride in their moral superiority. I love the classic one. You know this. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. That's the legalist. Hey, look at me. Man, I'm, you remind your wife delicately. Aren't you glad that I'm not like that? That's the legalist, the moral superior who prays, but only to remind God for the reasons he ought to answer his prayers. God, I've been serving you so good, I hadn't sinned at all today. You know, don't you think, Lord, you could open a door for me at work? Don't you think you could miraculously help me receive some kind of check in the mail? They read their Bible, but not because they can't wait to soak up what God might say to them today, but as a duty to check it off their list so that when they show up to church, they can look at all the people who clearly don't have the same kind of devotional life that they have because I hit seven out of seven this week, and you losers only got three. That's the legalist who compares themselves to others and tries to justify themselves before God. And it is a little funny. It'd be really funny if it weren't such a problem for us. You know, we know legalism has a negative impact on others. And so Jesus has to go after the Pharisees. He says, you guys lay heavy burdens on people, but you're not willing to lift a finger yourself. Right? Here you are, a bunch of blind guides, you're straining out gnats, but swallowing camels. Take the speck out of your own eye before you try to, or take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's. And Jesus has lots of words to say for the negative impact of legalism on others, on the people who are subjective to the cruel burdens that the legalists would lay on them. But it hit me this week that it also keeps the legalist herself from enjoying the joy, peace, and rest of God's grace. Did you get that? It's easy to preach about the problem of legalism. It's harder to look at yourself and say, how have I allowed a legalistic understanding of my relationship with God to rob me of the blessings he wants to give me and the relationship Jesus died to provide? That's the issue. Legalism is harmful for the legalist. And so I don't mean to alarm you. And I don't want you looking around. There are some legalists among us. They might be wearing your shoes. And uh, might need to listen a little bit. Because this is the problem. It's easy to talk about the Pharisees. It's harder to talk about ourselves. See, we are tempted to believe that the quality of our life our hope for the future, our mental well-being, our spiritual health. And ultimately, even God's attitude towards us depends on how we live, how well we obey, how well we keep 
his rules and the extra ones we add on to. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus says. Now that'll lead us to living on the endless wheel like a hamster, running, trying to prove our worth to God, trying to earn his love, but never actually getting there because it can't. So if you're like me, and you sometimes struggle to believe that God could love you because you failed him so many times, I want you to listen to Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Okay? I want you to see if maybe this might change things for you. See, he didn't apologize for his disciples' behavior. He didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. I had forgot to give them the insight into that rule. And as their rabbi, as their teacher, I'm responsible. So I'm sorry. You're going to have to, that, that's on me. I'm sorry. Now, he doesn't do that. Instead, he sweeps aside the entire debate. He says, I'm not going to enter into y'all's game debating on what's right and what's wrong. And the thing he holds up as his reason for doing that is his personal authority. He says their behavior is totally fine because he possesses an authority like David. He asks him, have you guys not read the scriptures? And he's, he's thinking about 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6. It's a great section of 1 Samuel. Uh, David has already been anointed the king of Israel. He's already killed Goliath. He's already slayed his thousands and ten thousands. And yet, the current reigning king, Saul, is out to kill him. And so David's on the run. And along the way, he collects to himself a band of merry men. And they're like disreputable lowlifes, right, who cling to David. And they follow him. They're totally committed to him. They believe in him. They know that God has anointed him, and one day David's going to be king. And so they're willing to identify with him in his fight. But they are terribly equipped for the battle. David doesn't even have a sword at this point. He's, he's had to escape for his life, and so he has nothing. No sword and nothing to eat. And so David shows up at Nob, where they've set up the tabernacle of God, and he goes in and asks the priest, do you have any bread for us? We're hungry. The priest says, oh, we don't have anything. All we've got are 12 loaves of consecrated bread that are in the holy place. But only, we, we're the only people who are allowed to eat that. This was bread that every week the priest would bake and set before the Lord in the holy place. And it would sit all week long as a reminder of the manna that God delivered to his people in the wilderness. And once a week, the priest would get together with his family, and they would eat that bread, and they would replace it with fresh bread. Only the priests, and only in the tabernacle. And yet Jesus and Scripture approve of the priest's decision to let David eat of the bread. I mean, they're outlaws. They're on the run. Not from the priestly family, not authorized by God's rule to eat the bread. And yet they do. I think you think about this, you maybe want to read this this afternoon. Think maybe what we're supposed to see here is that David is God's anointed king. And God is providing for him everything he needs for the mission he's been given. He's even willing to provide bread from his own house so that David can be sustained. 
And David's men were permitted to eat, not because they were priests or because they were righteous, but because they were David's men. God provided bread for David, and those who were connected to David received bread because of David's authority. And if those men received bread from God because they were with David, how much more Jesus' disciples who were with, not David, but David's son, whom David calls Lord, the anointed king who's bringing in his kingdom. I mean, if it was okay for David, surely it's okay for Jesus. So Jesus' authority is like David. He's got a unique personal authority that's rooted in his identity as God's anointed king. So haven't you read where David did what was unlawful? I think the same principle that applied to David certainly applies to me. But then Jesus goes to another level. Talks about the authority he has that's anchored and aligned with God's, all these A's and R's, can't keep them straight. They're all synonyms, they don't matter. They're aligned with God's design. Like he knew something about the Sabbath that the rabbis had missed. He says, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. He saw something in their approach that didn't fit. He knew what God was up to when he created the Sabbath. He was there, enjoying it with him. The Word, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. There's Jesus before his incarnation at the Father's side, perfectly enjoying and delighting in the things God had made, being per perfectly glorified in it. He knew what God was doing when he created the Sabbath. And so he had an insight into God's design that the Pharisees had missed. The Sabbath was a gift for God's people, an invitation to the most important work of all, the work of worship. But the Pharisees had obscured that purpose, loaded it up with all kind of man-made rules, all kind of traditions. And that's what led them to think that the Sabbath was there as this principle, as this idea that everybody owed some kind of allegiance to. You said, no, that's not, you're getting it backwards. The Sabbath is a gift. A day to be received from God and to be enjoyed. So when his disciples saw the grain as God's provision for their need and they received it from him as a gift, thank you God for the grain that you've provided. Deuteronomy says that a poor person could glean from a field that was ripe for harvest. Thank you God that you would preserve in your law a command that would allow us to take what we need and have our daily bread. They received it from God with joy and thanksgiving. I mean, weren't they doing exactly what God intended for the Sabbath? The Jesus' authority in permitting his disciples to do what the rabbis thought was unlawful was rooted in his understanding of God's design. And of course, most importantly of all, it was anchored in his identity. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you've been with us, you know that most of the time in Mark's gospel, Jesus is trying to keep people quiet about who he is. He tells the demons to be quiet. He tells the leper who's healed not to say anything to anybody. He's trying to control the flow of information so that he can finish the work God's given him to do rather than the crowds flocking to him and trying to set him up on a throne in Jerusalem or something. There are two times before we get to chapter 8 where Jesus just comes out and says it. He says who he is. And in both cases, he uses this phrase, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. It's his favorite name for himself. 
how he thinks of himself, as the Son of Man. It's how he announces himself as the Son of Man. It's a ministry he fulfills. He's the Son of Man. The Son of Man is an individual taken from Daniel's vision in chapter 7. Uh, one looking like a Son of Man who walks right into the heavenly throne room and receives from God a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Back in verse 10 of chapter 2, we saw that Jesus said that he was going to heal the man who was paralyzed so that they would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And who exercises the right to define what is and what is not appropriate behavior on the Sabbath? But the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus takes up that prerogative for himself. He says, I get to set the terms here. I'm the one who decides what is and what isn't appropriate. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So I think it's obvious from this story. We're wrapping up now, so I appreciate your patience and attention. I want you to hear this. The conflict in this story isn't really about the rules of Sabbath keeping. The conflict's about who gets to make the rules of Sabbath keeping. Do the rabbis, as the self-appointed authorities on what God expects, get to set the rules? Or does God himself get to set the terms of the debate? The legalist says, work hard now, and you'll get to rest later. And Jesus says, I'm here. It's all right. Take a breather and rest. He even says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12 is the story we just read today. It begins right here. And Jesus was passing through the grain fields one day. His disciples were picking the corn and rubbing it in their hands. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why do your disciples do what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus knows full well what he's doing. He is unburdening his disciples of all the man-made rules and traditions that have obscured what God intends for them to enjoy. He said, what you're trying to do in earning God's approval is an impossible task. It'd be better off if you took off the burden you've been carrying and tried mine on for size. See how that does you. You might find that all the burdens you've taken up in order to prove yourself to God are unneeded. I'm just glad to give it to you. Here's rest. Don't have to work for it. Here it is. So Jesus didn't come to relax the rules, showing God to be a pushover after all, like all that Old Testament stuff and all that rules. Man, aren't you glad we got done with that and got to throw it in the trash? Now, Jesus came to fulfill it, to perfectly obey every commandment, not as a legalist seeking to prove himself to God, but rather as God intended, as one whose heart, soul, mind, and strength is totally trained towards a love for God. You and I are hardwired. It's like within us to think in terms of rules. What can I get away with, but yet not fall out of the grace of God? 
what would God say if I did this? Well, he knows I'm human. It would be all right. Now, the Pharisees had taken this gift of a Sabbath, and they burdened it with rules, promising rest and blessedness at the judgment when God finally assesses right and wrong, when he finally weighs it out, and then he gives to the people who've really obeyed the rest they've always wanted. But Jesus came to secure the blessings of salvation so that you can rest easy in what he's already done. The Bible says each one of us was created by God to enter into his Sabbath rest, finding our perfect enjoyment and provision in who he is and what he'd given. But our first parents sinned against God and rebelled against his authority. And the history of mankind is that every human who ever lived has followed in their steps. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every last one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. There's no amount of obedience to our own rules or to God's that could put us back in the good with him. We're irreparably broken. Paul says that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walk. That's who we are. Created by God to know him, to live in perfect rest in all that he gives. And yet, here we are, endlessly trying to prove ourselves as somebody worthy to love. And yet, here's Jesus, sent by God to fulfill the law that we had disobeyed. And while we were yet sinners, to die on the cross for our sins, suffering the punishment that we deserved, so that by grace we could be saved and put in God's graces to be declared righteous in His sight. To not hear the law pressuring us, saying, hey, if you don't figure this out, if you don't live right, you're never going to know the goodness of God. But rather to say, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God so that none may boast. He does away with legalism completely. He says there's only one way, and it's by faith in Christ. And so I believe this morning that this is a word that every one of us needs to hear. Pharisees aren't the only people who try to figure out the rules of the game, make sure it works to their advantage, tell themselves that if they figure it out, if they do it right, maybe God will love them. We're all there. And so this morning, I would challenge you to think about this question. The most important question you could ask yourself. Am I trying to earn or work for or deserve God's blessing? Or am I resting in what Jesus has done for me? This morning, I want you to be at rest. I want you to rest easy in what Jesus has done. Will you pray with me?